This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Donald Bruckner, who's a professor of philosophy at Penn State. Uh, we are here to talk about uh, guns. Donald, thanks for coming on the show. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your interest. So I want to get started with a little background. I'm curious um, how you became interested in philosophy and then how you ended up as a philosophy professor. My first introduction to philosophy was through a high school mathematics teacher who had been a, a Catholic seminarian. Um, he didn't finish through the seminary, but he had been a seminarian. Essentially, seminarians get a, a bachelor's degree in philosophy. Um, in essence, they get they get a lot of background in philosophy. Um, so he had he had I don't I don't love this approach to introducing people to philosophy, but he had like quotes around the room. You know, I think therefore I am. Unexamined life is not worth living. Um, so and every so often he would talk a little bit about philosophy. Uh, the connection, especially he was a he was a mathematics teacher, but the connection, especially between mathematics and philosophy. Um, you know, um, uh, many math, many philosophers were mathematicians, Leibniz, um, Descartes was a mathematician. Um, so he sort of got me curious. And so I was interested in math. I was interested in philosophy. I went to college as an undergraduate. And I thought, you know, philosophy, let's let's see what that's about. I took a, you know, a, an introduction to philosophy course, but I also took, you know, the first math course that I was eligible to teach. And I just couldn't, I was just so interested in both. And I couldn't stop taking courses in both. So I ended up with a double major in math and philosophy. Um, and it just seemed as though I loved philosophy a little bit more and that my prospects for graduate school in philosophy were better than in mathematics. So I went to the best graduate program I could in philosophy. Um, uh, I got my PhD and then I failed in a traditional sense and that I didn't get a job my first time out. And so I decided, and, and you know, I mean, the job market of philosophy is very difficult. You've got to be at the whim of the market. I had an interview in um, in England. I had an interview in Canada and, and I didn't get those jobs, but my wife and I thought, do we really want to change our lives so much in order that I can have the sort of job that I want? Or might we have the sort of life that we want and change the kind of job that I want. So I left, I left academia. Um, we uh, undertook sort of an experiment. We bought a seven and a half acre little farmette. And we said, this is the kind of life we'd like to have. And I ended up, you know, working um, for a Department of Human Services in Allegheny County in Pittsburgh. But then I failed at failing because someone, someone uh, at my graduate program at the University of Pittsburgh offered me a visiting teaching position. Um, and so I taught in a visiting capacity there for a couple of years. And then I was in the right place at the right time when I was introduced to Penn State New Kensington. Uh, I met someone in a social situation um, and he introduced me to the campus. Penn State New Kensington is just a small campus of Penn State. There are 20 some odd across the Commonwealth. Um, it's sort of a teaching focused institution, but with all the resources of a large research university. Um, so by being in the right place at the right time, essentially, that's how I ended up to be a, a philosophy professor. Yeah, and I will definitely back up what you're saying about the job market. It has only gotten worse. No. I no, was on it, it during the pandemic and it was an absolute bloodbath. 
No, um, it's impossible. I mean, the 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 number of people who are who are smarter than I am, who have better publications, more more high quality publications, um, who deserve a a better job than I have, end up with 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 without. Um, it's 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 the situation we're in, unfortunately. Well, it's a collective action problem. This is um, a researcher at a. Uh, economics think tank this year i just finished up um, and i was talking to the um, economists there and they're like yeah the economics uh, job market's great wow um and they said part of it is we don't overproduce phds philosophy does so yes. you have an oversupply under demand well you end up with a glut and then they just seem to build up and build I and mean, you people you know they've been on the job market for three or four years and they're still looking and then you Absolutely. keep adding new graduates to that pile absolutely well yeah um but somehow, somehow economics has figured this out, and we haven't. I don't know how that is a thing, but anyway. Right. anyway. Well, some advice from the economists, I guess. <laughs> yes, we <did>. No, we <laughs> have all the economists' example. So there was a recent shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Obviously, we all heard about that. There was a one in my hometown of Sacramento a few mm-hmm. months, a month or two ago. Seems like, I hear this a lot, but we're the only Western country that has such widespread access to guns. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I... But I do know that a lot of people want to either scale back, ban, prohibit guns. I'm wondering among philosophers, what is the best argument for this? Like what, if I said, well, why should we restrict guns? What's the argument for it? In the literature, what, what do you think the best version of that argument is? Yeah, I mean, I think that the best version of the argument is a consequence-based argument based on the death toll from guns. From the research that I've seen, it's true what you say that in other uh, other countries that are like the U.S. in similar ways, in, in relevant ways, uh, without such widespread access to guns, the number of deaths from guns um, is, is minuscule in comparison. So I think that the strongest argument in favor of restricting access to guns is just a consequentialist argument on the basis of the harm counted usually by deaths. And so according to the most recent CDC statistics um, in 2019, there were 14,000 murders due to guns, 24,000 suicides, about 500 accidents and about 600 um, self-defense uses of guns that resulted in a death. So that's about 39,000 round up to 40,000 deaths due to guns. That's a lot of deaths. And so the argument is that if we could enact measures that would reduce those deaths, then those measures would be justified in order to reduce those deaths if we're not giving up something of comparable value. And the argument is, well, those deaths are really important and pale in comparison to other values. And so we should enact legislation to restrict access and reduce those deaths. So you said um, you you listed those numbers, um, guns used in self-defense that resulted in a death. So I always think about whenever we talk about policy, you always have to think about the costs and the benefits. And you said something really limiting there. You said if we didn't lose anything of comparable value. I'm wondering though, if the guns from self-defense that result in death really captures the comparable value. So for example, suppose um, you break into my house and I point a gun at you and you run away. That's not gonna be in those numbers. So it's, I'm wondering if, cause this is something that seems to always get lost. We talk about deaths and like shootings and whatnot, which I, I mean, I get that it's important. We never seem to talk and as a society about 
self-defense uses of guns. And I don't just mean ones that re- result in death. I mean, ones that just don't ever right. get reported, right? But I'm wondering what, what I'm saying is what, what does the other side look like? Like there's these deaths from guns, but then are there like self-defense uses that would, you know, would justify having the gun, that kind of thing? There, there are, and I'm looking at, I'm going to try to find some statistics in my paper now. It, it's, let me just say this without trying to argue about the statistics, because I'm not positive that it's, it's worthwhile to do it given sort of the agenda that I have and thinking about wider implications of this argument. Um, But let's just say that there's a lot of disagreement on the number of actual self-defense uses due to guns. Um, There's a government agency, I forget which government agency it is, that does interviews of people to ask them about when they've had to defend themselves with guns. And if you look at that estimate of self, defense uses, um, it's not a lot of self-defense uses. So it doesn't look like, I I don't have a number, so it doesn't look like there are that many lives that are saved by brandishing a gun, as you say, because um, the vast majority of self-defense uses are not going to be used where a bullet is actually fired and results in the death of somebody, but it's going to be, you know, I've got a gun and it's shown and the intruder or the assailant um, uh, goes away. Um, so, but any anyway, anyway, when you ask people in that context of a of a survey done by a government agency, it looks pretty small. However, um, when academic researchers do this, there's an individual by the name of Gary Kleck who's known in this field. I think he's a sociologist. When he asks people outside of the context of uh, sort of being under the auspices of a government agency, he gets like an alarmingly higher rate of self-defense uses of guns. Like maybe it's 10 times the rate of self-defense uses of guns. So if you look at that, it's um, you know, way more than the 650 that are estimated by the, by the CDC. Um, but le- but I mean, the best I can say about that, I don't have a firm view about like, you know, where the, where the, um, where the reasons, where the weight of the reasons lie, but, there's some legitimate disagreement about what the real number of self-defense uses of guns are and how many lives guns save. I mean, for my part, for the for the argument that I want to put forward, I'm prepared to grant that that argument that I, I articulated based on the death toll from guns, I'm prepared to grant that that's a good argument. And my interest is is in is in seeing what follows. From that, I mean, I'm sort of willing to grant that argument for the sake of argument. I want to. Say. Oh, don't no, we're we're going to get there. Don't worry. Mm. We're, I'm slow walking. Okay, yeah, yeah, but good enough. Good, we're going to get there. Enough. I promise. The other thing that came to mind, and it's something that um, I hear people talk about a lot. So you mentioned it was a consequentialist argument, meaning you know the consequences um, sort of set the moral the moral stage, right? That. But I wonder, like, we don't always think this. We don't always think it's about consequences. Sometimes we think, like, rights or duties, you know, if you're a deontologist, right? Um, and it might be that, you know, these other Western countries are just wrong. You can have a lot of deaths and unfortunate deaths that doesn't detract from, you know, let's say, my right to self-defense. Uh, there's a philosopher, Michael Humer, makes this argument. He says, like, sure. look, the, the, the best, the, there's been other philosophers who have made this argument, too. Say, look, you know, when you have a right to self-defense, you also have a right to execute or or ensure that right. To have the means of defending yourself. If you've got the right, you've got the right to the means to defend yourself. And a great way to do that is a gun. Right. Right. I mean, it's not the only way. You can use a bat, you can use a brick, a knife, but a gun is a very effective way 
And we don't think, at least in some cases, that you know, rights are all that sensitive to consequences. They're not totally insensitive, but like, why isn't that a good argument? I just say, well, you know, I mean, these things are, are unfortunate, they're tragic, it's fine, it's true, but I have the right to a gun, do Right. Um, so one philosopher who's addressed this um, is uh, David de Grazia. And he argues that, let's take that. Uh, I think that his form of the argument is, yeah, let's, let's grant that there is a right to self-defense, but not all rights are indefeasible. The, the, the right could be defeated by other rights. And he says, well, people have also have a right not to be shot. <laughs> so if you, if you look at um, um, the weighing those two rights, the right not to be shot and the right to you know, have the means to your self-defense, um, um, those rights are in conflict because if people have guns, then other people's right not to be shot is going to be violated. And he comes down on the side of the right to self-defense by a gun is in many cases defeated by the right not to be shot. Interestingly, he allows that the right to self-defense with a gun is not defeated in the case of people who live in an especially dangerous area where they might be um, at a higher risk of being attacked. Um, you know, think of a, um, um, a, a city with a high crime rate in your neighborhood. He thinks that the right to defend yourself with a gun is not defeated for people who live in rural areas where the response time by police might be especially slow. Um, so one way one could argue against de Grazia is sort of keep pushing that. Um, when is that right not defeated? Because if you think about the number of people who live in a densely populated area where there's a lot of crime, that's a lot of people. If you think about the number of people who live in a rural area, there's lots of rural land in the, in, in the, in the United States. That's a lot of people. If you think about the number of people, and this is an argument that uh, people make for that right not being defeated. If you think about the number of people who's, for whom the police can't get there in time to defend them against an assailant or an intruder, well, that's a lot of people. In fact, courts have held that the right that, that police only have a general duty to protect people, but you are not, uh, you don't have a claim against the police. They don't have a duty to protect you in particular. So if you call the police, there's an intruder at my door, they don't arrive in time to save your life, your family doesn't have a claim against the police. Attacks and home invasions occur in a matter of minutes, often just seconds, when one doesn't have, one may not have time to call the police. Um, one might only have time to reach for a gun and to um, fire upon or brandish the weapon at least um, to the person who is attacking or bent on attacking one. Um, so, I mean, that's one way one could go against de Grazia's argument and say, well, there's a lots of cases where that right to self-defense 
um, by a very effective weapon for self-defense is not defeated. Actually, um, I think that Supreme Court case was from 78, I think. Okay. Uh, I talk about it when I talk about my, uh, in class, when I talk about anarchism. Um, the government mm -hmm. doesn't care and it shows, kind of. <laughs> right? That's sort of my jokey argument for it. Um, okay, so we got those, those are the two big arguments off the table. Because I, part of the reason I want to talk about it is that it bugs me we don't talk about lives saved by guns very much. I, I, I don't know what those numbers are, but we don't, it seems like we rarely bring it up. But suppose we put those aside. Um, what are the implications of this consequential argument? So what, what do you think drives the argument? Do you think it's like a general principle, you know, sort of like Peter Singer's, you know, if you can, you know, prevent suffering and death without, you know, sacrificing something, you know, of moral significance? He's got two different versions of it, but you know, mm -hmm. I'm talking about his drowning child uh, paper. Fam uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, was it poverty, famine? Fingers pulled, yeah. Famine affluence and something. Anyway. Famine affluence and morality, yeah. All right, that's the one. Yes. <clears throat> I teach all the time. I should have this memorized. Um, <laughs> do you think it's a general, like a general principle of like beneficence or something? Or what what do you think drives this? No, argument? I don't think it's a I don't think it's a principle of beneficence so much as I mean, I call it a, a kind of a harm principle, not not Mill's harm principle, but another harm principle that effect that in essence says. And I think that the Grazia appeals to something very similar to this principle in his in his consequentialist version of the argument against guns. And if I'm wrong about attributing this argument to, to Grazia in that context, I know that he uses it in the context of arguing for veganism and the unnecessary harm done to animals and the environment by producing and consuming factory farm meat. But the basic argument, the basic principle that I think drive this drives this argument against guns is that if there's a harm that is occurring, then one ought to, well, supporting that harm or engaging in that harm or not reducing that harm is wrong if that harm is widespread and unnecessary. Now, the harm due to firearms is widespread, 40,000 people a year. And the argument is that it's unnecessary. Actually, we're we're already we're already at about twenty three this year. So for yeah, two thousand twenty two. Yeah, I believe yeah, that. It's, it's, yeah. um, and the argument is that that's unnecessary. And people make this argument all the time. It is not necessary for individuals to have military style weapons where they can go into a school and kill many people very quickly. What um, do you, I just pause there. What do you mean by necessary? What is that what philosophers use that term? What do they mean? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure, but I think that they might mean, for example, hey, look, if you want, if you have an interest in guns, and you people refer to, I don't know what this means either. People refer to legitimate uses of guns. Um, you, if you've got an interest in legitimate in a legitimate use of gun, you don't need to have. Um, an assault, an assault, a so-called assault-style weapon, in order to um, satisfy that interest. If you want to hunt, you can hunt with a bolt-action rifle with a five-round magazine, as opposed to a semi-automatic rifle with a thirty-round magazine. If you want to shoot targets, you can um, you can you can shoot targets with um, 
a, um, a very low powered rifle, like the kind used to shoot rabbits or squirrels. You don't need to shoot targets with a high powered rifle. So I think that, that what people mean is it's unnecessary in that sense. Donald, have you ever, you ever been to a shooting range and fired a 50 caliber? I have not. Oh, it's a blast. It's not low powered at all. No, it's not. You could probably take out a school bus with this puppy. I mean, I wouldn't advise owning one, but just for the sheer fun of it, it's a blast. I would. I mean, I would highly recommend it just for like recreational reasons. It's a. It's but a I think the response to that is that that's that's just not necessary. Um, okay. It's not necessary given whatever. It's not necessary to own uh, ballistic missiles for for an individual to own ballistic missiles or mortal mortars or whatever, right? So I think that that's what. I think that that's what philosophers have in mind when they say unnecessary. Um, you can do a lot of things with guns without having these kinds of guns. So it's unnecessary and it causes lots of suffering. I think that's the thought. It causes widespread harm. The harm is unnecessary. And so that's the reason uh, to restrict access so that we can reduce some of that harm. I think there's a lot of Sorites paradoxes in ethics. So Sorites paradox for people who don't know is a Sorites means the heap. It's, a, it's Greek for the heap. And it's um, one rock doesn't make a heap. But if I take enough of them, eventually I don't have a heap anymore. Right? Little, little pebble, I take a pebble, take a pebble, take a pebble. A lot of things we do aren't necessary. And presumably some of them cause harm. It, it reminds me of a passage from um, a book by Peter Singer. He was talking about his drowning child thought experiment in relationship to global poverty. And he goes, suppose you saved the life of a child. You've donated my, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it roughly. Uh, you've donated money, you save the life of a child, and you want to buy a bottle of champagne and go to the movies. Don't celebrate yet, he says, because the money you spent on that champagne and the movie ticket could be used to save another child's life. Right. In fact, you should continue donating until you're almost as bad off as the people you're trying to save. Right. But that doesn't, that seems a lot. I mean, it's not kind of like, oh, it's unnecessary. It's this thing. Don't, don't own a gun, right? Because, or don't buy a gun. We shouldn't have guns and civilians. Or low-powered guns, or restrict the guns, or something, right? But then it's like, well, wait a minute. Based on that principle, why stop there? Right? Like, I mean, it's like a TV commercial or you know, like an infomercial. You know, like, and like, and like, we're not done. We're gonna cut this. They're gonna cut this price in half even more. In other words, like, you know, why stop with the guns? Why not do? I, don't know, I, I think I'm stealing the lead here, but yeah, no, that's that all right. Principle. I mean, that's that's. So, I mean, the way you articulated that argument, it made it almost sound like a slippery slope argument as opposed to a heap argument, um, that if we take away this un this unnecessarily harmful activity or product, we should take away this unnecessarily harmful activity or product, we should take away this one until we're just so bad off. I mean, it, it, I mean, Singer actually advances this, as you said, until we're almost as bad off as the person we're trying to help. Um, that's one kind of argument, and one can say, well, Singer just slid right down that slippery slope. The argument that I make is that this focus on widespread unnecessary harm applies not just to firearms, but it applies to alcohol. And the reason I chose alcohol is because, I mean, just given people I know who are, are advocates of 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 gun control and, and, and um, you know, have never, never fired a firearm and, um, and are staunchly opposed to firearms. Those are also people who, um, who, who enjoy drinking alcohol in social situations. It's just sort of an observation that I mean, lots and lots of people 
drink alcohol among people I know in, in academia. Very few people I know own or have fired guns um, among my academic colleagues. So I got to thinking, well, um, there's also a lot of unnecessary harm done by alcohol. Um, Again, I, this, these are 2000, oh, from the two, CDC statistics from 2015 to 2019, alcohol caused about 140,000 deaths. That's three and a half times as many, three and a half times as many deaths as were caused by firearms. Really? Um, the number is really that low? I would expect the deaths to be higher. I mean, because just because alcohol is so widespread, You'd expect yeah. it to be more than one hundred and forty thousand, just because of how widespread it is, and that's what the, that's what the that's hmm. what the government statistics from the CDC say. And no, I believe I'm, you. I'm just I'm just surprised by it. Yeah, and I'm happy I'm happy to take that. <laughs> um, so here's sort of the breakdown. I gave you the breakdown of murder and suicides and accidents for guns. Um, actually, these are somewhat older statistics, and these aren't going to add up to one hundred and forty thousand. About ten thousand traffic fatalities due to alcohol each year, where the driver was officially impaired with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.08% or higher. That's about a third of all traffic fatalities in the US. About 6,000 of those deaths were of the drivers themselves. About 4,000 were people other than the drivers. Um, in the same period from 2006 to 2008, 10 each year, there were about 8,000 homicides attributable to alcohol use. That's about half of all homicides and about 8,000 suicides attributed, attributable to alcohol. I was also actually a little bit surprised to find out that the number of accidental deaths due to alcohol were so high, about 7,500 deadly falls due to alcohol and 10,000 cases of fatal poisoning due to alcohol. So. I mean, again, those don't add up to 140,000 deaths because that does, those are just like the acute causes of death. Um, those don't count the chronic causes of death, like alcoholic liver disease or um, uh, head and neck cancers are, um, are often attributed to alcohol use. Um, I recently, I didn't see this in, an, in a study, um, but it was from, uh, I think the Canadian government website was making the claim that alcohol is closely linked with breast cancer. Um, so lots and lots of deaths of other people due to alcohol use, um, like in drunken driving cases or homicides and lots and lots of self-inflicted deaths, either suddenly like a death, like, like a, a fall or a, a, a poisoning, or over the course of time, like in cancer or, uh, or liver disease. Um, so the parallel argument goes in the obvious way. Look, if the argument for gun control on the basis of the widespread unnecessary harm is a good argument, then I've got a parallel argument to offer you. Um, uh, in order to reduce some of those uh, 140,000 unnecessary deaths due to alcohol, we should restrict access to alcohol. And we can do that in a way that actually uh, often parallels the kind of restrictions that gun control advocates offer. 
So for example, um, some people argue that we should ban guns altogether. That would be parallel to a total ban on alcohol. Some people have, I mean, there are background checks in place for um, most, most firearm purchases. Um, uh, but if we had universal background checks for firearms, we could have universal background checks for alcohol purchases because presumably someone um, with a disqualifying uh, condition for a firearm purchase, they're more likely to cause harm to other people. Similarly, someone with certain disqualifying conditions for an alcohol purchase, like, you know, they've got a history of drunken driving, they've got a history of domestic violence, um, they um, are addicted to unlawful substances or alcohol, those would seem to be good disqualifying uh, conditions for someone to purchase or consume alcohol. It's, it's kind of mind boggling to me that people don't see this parallel um, and people don't see like the number of lives that could be saved by um, severely restricting access to alcohol or completely banning alcohol. Um, so just for example, um, a third of our traffic fatalities in the US are due to people being officially impaired, 34% um, um, in our country. In many European countries, the uh, blood alcohol concentration limit is 0.05% instead of our 0.08% in most states. That cuts the traffic fatalities about in half to about 16%. Is that like, Yeah, when you lower it to 0.05%. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that really low in Japan too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Japan has a zero tolerance. 0.00 oh. is there. So oh, like wow. even having a, like just having a beer with dinner would be. Oh, absolutely. Too much. Yeah. In, impairment yeah. starts with the first drink. If you have one beer and you drive an hour later, you, you are more likely to, uh, to cause an accident and hurt someone or yourself than if you didn't have any. Um, uh, so it seems that like drinking after having any alcohol. So here's, here's a, here's a parallel restriction. Um, in most jurisdictions, in most jurisdictions, it's illegal to shoot bullets in the air um, because there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a probability a very very low probability that when you shoot a bullet into the air, it's going to land on someone's head and it's going to kill them or severely injure them. It's a very very small probability, but it seems like a good it seems like a reasonable restriction. You ought not to be firing bullets in the air. If that's a reasonable restriction, then maybe it's equally reasonable to prohibit any driving after consuming alcohol, to have a 0.00% blood alcohol concentration limit, because if you have one drink and drive an hour later, that increases the probability. It makes it just a little bit more likely that you will be involved in an accident um, and injure yourself, injure or kill someone else. So if restrictions on shooting bullets in the air seem to be um, reasonable restrictions, then uh, a total prohibition on drinking after, sorry, driving after drinking any alcohol would seem to be a reasonable restriction. So I'm curious what the implications, it seems like you're making a parody argument in a sense, right? A parody argument? Yeah. There, in a sense that there's comparable harms, there's comparable things we could do to address those harms, both in alcohol and guns. And I'm wondering if someone just said, you know, Donald, you're right. Uh, we should severely restrict alcohol. Would you be happy yeah. with that? 
or yeah, thought? I think I would be happy with it. I mean, I, I don't really have very strong feelings about the sorts of restrictions that are or aren't justified for firearms. I'm willing, for the sake of argument, to give the person who is opposed to firearms and wants stricter controls, I'm willing to give them that argument, that there should be some, what whatever that some is. And I'm not aiming to defeat that argument. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not aiming to catch someone in a reductio ad absurdum. Well, if you think that, then you must think that we should uh, have these alcohol restrictions. That's absurd. Therefore, you can't support greater firearms control. That's not my agenda. I mean, that's one lesson that one could take away. The other lesson that one could take away is, is to say, well, indeed, as you said, sort of bite the bullet, so, so to speak, bite the bullet and not swallow, swallow the alcohol. Do restrict guns or restrict guns in many of the ways that, that guns are already restricted. I mean, part of my point is that many of the ways in which guns and access to guns are already instructed Sorry, already. Let me start again. <laughs> Many of the ways in which guns and access to guns are already controlled are ways in which we fail currently to have similar controls on alcohol. I was giving the example of shooting bullets in the air. I was giving the example of background checks. People who have a history of domestic violence are not allowed to purchase guns. People who are felons because they've committed a white collar crime are not allowed to purchase guns. People who have a history of domestic, so a parallel control for domestic violence is that we ought to restrict alcohol access for people with a history of domestic violence. Why? Because just like access to guns makes someone who is an abuser more likely to harm someone, access to alcohol makes someone who is an abuser more likely to harm someone, and so on. So part of my point is we have to recognize that even the existing restrictions on guns have parallels to restrictions on alcohol that aren't yet existing and ought to exist if the restrictions on guns that do currently exist are justified. There seems to be a big disanalogy between booze and guns. So one way to bring this out is my understanding is that half of all homicides, either the victim or the perpetrator is inebriated. Alcohol makes you, you humans, people, more aggressive. Mm -hmm. One of the few drugs that does, actually. Guns don't make you more aggressive. I mean, I'm not trying to use the cliched thing like, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, because I think that's a stupid argument. In other words, it doesn't, the gun doesn't affect the chemistry of your brain, I guess is what I'm saying. We don't restrict knives. Knives are used way more in a lot of these domestic cases than guns are. In fact, the kitchen is actually the place where, from my understanding, overwhelmingly domestic violence incidents take place. Now, I'm not saying that domestic violence, people who have a history of this should own guns. I'm just simply saying that they'll just do something else. They'll use a pan, a knife, their fists. Alcohol, though, that can exacerbate a problem. So, because it makes you more aggressive. It makes someone who maybe wouldn't otherwise be aggressive more aggressive. So it seems like there's a, there's a big difference there. I don't know if it's relevant for your argument, but it seems like a, a difference. Um, it could be. It could be. I mean, that's one of the problems with with alcohol for sure, that it impairs one's judgment. And as you were saying, it might, it does lead one to take actions that one wouldn't otherwise take if one weren't under the influence of alcohol by 
becoming aggressive, by striking someone, by not thinking through the situation, by not thinking of some alternate means of resolution of the situation. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's a, that's a parallel um, kind of that could help my argument by saying, here's a further aspect about alcohol that it doesn't apply in the gun situation that makes it an even stronger case in favor of restricting the alcohol in order to reduce some of the harm. Um, I'm not sure though, there's one thing, two things actually. Do you think that someone walking down the street with a, I don't know, a rock is more or less likely to use that rock than someone walking down the street with a gun? I mean, isn't part of the problem that people point out about guns is that it's an easy first resort if you're carrying a gun. You can get angry and you want to um, end this conflict very decisively and doing it with a gun is an easy way to do that. Isn't that, isn't that an argument that, that people make? It doesn't change your brain chemistry, but it's like you have access to this weapon. Um, it's an easy weapon to carry and deploy. And because it's so easy and because when you're angry in a, in a heated situation, you can do something um, that could have like very, very destructive consequences that a knife is less likely to have, that a pan is less likely to have, that a rock is less likely to have. So, I mean, this sort of ties into they'll do something into, into your they'll do something else point. Well, to answer that question, if I was in a close contact fight with somebody and I wanted to resolve it real quick, I'd rather have my head and a knife. I've shot, I mean, I own, I own guns. I've shot guns many times. I'm very, very familiar with guns. Um, they're unwieldy. They kick. They're loud. They're heavy. In close contact, you can get it taken away from you. I'd much rather have a knife. You can do a lot of damage with a knife close up. So the advantage of a gun is you can do damage farther away, right? But in close contact, so what I'm saying is it depends on the conflict. If it's like, you know, right here, headbutt them. Right, stab them. If it's farther away, more likely to shoot, maybe. But it also depends when I think they have a gun, right? And you know the the, the saying, "A well-armed society is a polite society." Yes. Well, it's like I don't want to get shot either, right? So I'm going to be. Um, so I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that it probably depends on the parameters, the situation, what I think the other person's got, how close we are in proximity. Um, I try to handle things with words, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. Right, I'm a philosopher, but I'd probably try and reason with the person. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not so sure there's an answer to that question. I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. I mean, I see where you're going, right? It gives you an. I think that the intuition you're going for is it gives you sort of an out, in a way that if you don't have those sorts of weapons, you're a little more boxed in. It would be a little more diplomatic than you'd otherwise be. Right. I mean, I think that's the intuition. Yeah. That's the intuition that, that you, you, you might have to, if you have no weapon at all, or if you have um, a knife and you think the other guy might have a gun, you might be more likely to engage in creative problem solving or to deescalate the situation or run away. Um, but there's a flip side. There's a flip side to this. It was, there's, a, there's an essay. It's not philosophically rigorous, but I recommend reading it if you haven't. It's called The Riddle of the Gun by Sam Harris. Um, and he makes a point, and I want to quote him because it's a really good point. I'm not sure it settles this, but it's sort of the other side um, of what we're talking about. He says, and I quote, a world without guns is one in which the most aggressive men can do more or less anything they want. There have been cases of prison guards 
helplessly standing by as one of their own was stabbed to death by a lone prisoner armed with an impoverished blade. The hesitation of bystanders in these situations makes perfect sense. And diffusion of responsibility has little to do with it. The fantasies of many martial artists aside, to go unarmed against a person with a knife is to put yourself in very real peril. A world without guns is a world in which no man, not even a member of SEAL Team 6, can reasonably expect to prevail over more over more than one determined attacker at a time. Mm-hmm. A world without guns is one in which the advantages of youth, size, strength, aggression, and sheer numbers are almost always decisive. Who would be nostalgic for such a world? End quote. Right. In other words, it might make you more aggressive in some ways, but it might also... You're an old, you know, you're an old man or an old woman or a little kid or a, not a kid, but a, you know, someone who's physically smaller or, and you're going up against someone who's bigger. So that would maybe be the flip side of that. I mean, this goes back to the self-defense numbers that were sort of right um, dodgy. Mm-hmm. But I just, it's an interesting point. I, I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about that until I wrote his essay. I thought, well, that's, I don't really want to live in a world either where sheer size and strength prevails. Um, it's not a point I've thought a lot about. I think that the counter argument to that is going to be, look at societies where access to guns is severely restricted. Um, it's just true that gun homicides or the gun homicide rate um, in many European countries is just minuscule in comparison to what it is in the United States. Because you you brought that up, and I, f- I forgot to ask you a follow up. Do you know what the numbers are for homicides generally? Um, with things like you know fists, knives, bricks, call, you know what what happened, like non gun caused homicides. No, I do not, and that's a, that's a fair point, and that would be the relevant comparison. Yeah. Um, you often see in the media attacker in whatever country attacker with a knife kills two and wounds one. <laughs> And they're, they're making the point that if this attacker had had an assault weapon rather than a gun, then they would have been able to um, kill far fewer and wound fewer. Um, but no, that is a relevant point. And that's fair. Not, I don't know. But yeah, I don't, I don't know what the relevant comparisons are. I'm just sort of curious because you brought it up and I, I forgot to ask. That's right. That, that is a legitimate question. That's a good point. We would need to know what the overall homicide rate is um, because if people are indeed you know, just doing something else, as you said earlier, then that would argue in favor of um, of uh, not restricting the guns if they're just going to turn to something else. I also wonder too, and I I don't know what the data is. I'm sure there are, are social scientists who work on this. The United States is a very unique country in a lot of ways. Like a, like you know, take the United States versus Sweden. Sweden doesn't have a huge population of people who used to be slaves. Right, America's unique in that. Um, we have we've displaced a lot of Native Americans. We have a very probably one of the most not not the the most div- Brazil and Mexico are pretty diverse too. But one of the most diverse countries. I mean, if you go to China, for example, you hardly ever see anyone who's not Chinese. <laughs> or you go to Sweden, you see a bunch of white Swedish people. I mean, it's just Africa, you see a bunch of black people. Like there's just a bunch of um, Brazil's pretty diverse. Mexico's pretty diverse. In the United States. Um, but I kind of wonder, I don't, I don't know how to pin down this question, but I wonder like what are history and cultural diversity and ethnic diversity factors into, because I know that, um, I know there's numbers that countries that are more homogeneous tend to be much more um, wealthier countries, tend to be much more generous with their welfare 
programs, like food stamps and housing subsidies and that and whatnot. Because they're helping people like them. Right. Well, I don't, I'm trying to avoid the racist nonsense, but yeah, basically. Right, right. And I'm wondering if that's a factor too with guns, like our violence, really. Like if you have, you know, you've got our history, our cultural and ethnic diversity, there are strengths to it, but maybe that's one of the downsides where you have this like weird dis- tribal distrust nonsense between people. I don't know. It, it might be. I mean, this is what politicians often say. The problem isn't with the guns. The problem is that the United States has unique cultural circumstances and what needs to be fixed is the culture and not access to guns. And we could fix these other cultural problems like poverty, mental health, um, uh, uh, drugs. We could uh, go a long way toward reducing the harm that's done by guns. That's an argument that is often made. But if it's really, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud now. I mean, if it's really true that the violence due to guns is due to unique cultural circumstances in the U.S., then maybe that is a reason in favor of reducing access to guns because of those unique cultural circumstances in the U.S. that might not change. Some we can change, but some of the, like the cultural history. Yeah, it's not like, it's not going to go back in time and like, Yes. Abolish slavery earlier or something. Yeah, so, right? so now that I think about it, that the, the United States has unique cultural circumstances, that might actually be an argument in favor of, of restricting because of the culture. I mean, we're not going to change the culture that might it would it would depend too on whether or not it's the guns are going to be substituted for something else. So it's going to go back to that other question, the other means, yeah. right? Bricks, right. Right, 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 right. Right. Um but also too, this is this is something that I I, I guess I don't know part of Every time I hear a discussion about gun control in this country, I just roll my eyes and think, I know a lost cause when I see it. And the reason I say that is we have 400 million guns approximately. It's hard to estimate exactly, but roughly. You're never getting those guns back. You can get some of them back, but that's a lot of guns. 400 million guns to wrap me up. If you wanted to go severe restriction or prohibition, I'm not talking around the, like at the, the margins, you could do some things here and there. But if you really wanted to get to the heart of it, 400 million guns, we don't have the political will to do a lot of things. We definitely don't have the political will to get 400 guns, 400 million guns. That's just a lot of guns. Right. And those guns would stay in circulation for some time. And even if they were taken out of circulation, it could be a prohibition type situation where when alcohol was prohibited, people produced it underground. And there was a black market for alcohol. So we should probably expect that if guns were entirely prohibited, and even if 90% of the 400,000 people turned in their guns, there would still be a black market in existing guns and a black market for the production of illicit guns. What makes it even worse is if 3D printers ever become cheap and prolific. Right. I actually think this has huge implications for the gun control debate. Um, I've been tempted to write an article about this, actually, like why gun control is a waste of time with the 3D printers. It'd be like trying to prohibit people from printing stuff out on their laser printers on their computers. I mean, it would, it would be a fool's errand. I mean, you could punish them when you caught them. But well, I think that the response to this argument that I was just making about prohibition, look, guns are very, very widespread. It's pretty easy to get a gun even as someone who is prohibited from getting a gun because one has a history of felonies or whatever, it's pretty easy still to get a gun uh, through illicit means. One way people get guns illegally is through people who have guns 
legally. And so people who have guns legally are able to sell guns illegally to people who can't have guns legally. Don't you think that a lot of that supply, though, would dry up if there were instead of 400 million guns, 40 million guns, um, and instead of lots and lots of firearms being sold every day, there were, you know, a fraction of that by people who had gun shops in their basements or 3D printers. Don't you think that a lot of that supply would dry up for the people who are no. now getting... No? Really? Oh, I, I applaud your uh, optimism. <laughs> I do. I really do. Um, no, I think people are ingenious. And I think if you prohibit guns, you've now made them a much more valuable commodity. And valuable commodities incentivize people. People are quite ingenious. I mean, drugs. Oh, we have fentanyl. You, you can sneak enough fentanyl to kill the entire country on one person. Because people, the reason you have fentanyl is because we've prohibited drugs. When you prohibit something, people find ways of sneaking it across in concentrated form, and you can cut it up and divide it and spread it out. Well, you've now just incentivized people to find really ingenious ways of sneaking drugs across the border. You're going to do the exact same thing with guns. And the reason I'm saying this is because people are ingenious at solving problems and coming up with stuff. And it's amazing the stuff people come up with. It's always like whenever I think my syllabus is foolproof, they make a smarter fool. It's like, That's I didn't right. think about that exception. Dang it. Right? That's, That's right. yeah. So, I mean, I, I would hope you're correct, but I don't, I don't think you are. It's hard to know. It's a counterfactual. I don't know, but yeah. Right. No, I see that. Um, I guess one could, if one wanted to push that argument that I was making, if the supply dries up, you're not going to have such, you, you're, you're not going to have the supply and it's going to be harder for people who shouldn't have guns to get them. I guess one would have to look at places where guns have been restricted severely um, to see if empirically that actually does turn out to be the case. Like, I mean, I get your point totally about the parallel with drugs. Um, that incentivizes people to bring drugs in or to produce drugs and distribute them. But one would have to look at, and I don't know what the empirical, empirical facts show, um, about the distribution of guns in places where they've been severely restricted. But again, in places where they've been severely restricted, um, I think that the data shows that there is far less gun crime. So that would seem to indicate that those forces haven't the underground market hasn't done what you were predicting it would do in those places. But your, your earlier point, maybe they're turning to other means of killing people. That's another matter. Well, it, it, well, part of this too is psychology, right? I mean, there's a difference between never having something and then having it and then it getting taken away from you. Like if you have a culture of gun ownership and then you change access to guns, you may have a market in a place where otherwise you wouldn't have a market because people aren't used to it. But there's another thing too, which I thought I've been thinking a lot about, which is this whole gun control debate, it's bizarre. And I, I've had it with politicians who make this argument where they're like, oh, in order to take on the government, you need F-22s and nuclear weapons. And you're like, are you kidding me? We can't even win a war against the Viet Cong and the, um, the folks in Afghanistan and Iraq with small arms and, and you know, and, Improvised explosive devices, IEDs, and we're, we're incompetent at this. And I mean, Ukraine's been able to resist Russia. I mean, they're probably going to lose the war, but they've been very much more effective at resisting Russia than we ever thought. Mm -hmm. And I think it doesn't take much for a government to turn on people. This is one of the arguments um, for having the Second Amendment in the first place, which is 
we live in a time, I think, of unusual peace and prosperity, generally speaking. Does that always hold? Are we spoiled by this post-World War II era? I, I really do. Maybe it's paranoia, but in my bones, I just think we are lucky right now. But I kind of wonder, is it going to be World War III, another Great Depression, some bad event that's huge and catastrophic? And we take this as like, oh, so we have this post-World War II peace and prosperity, relatively speaking. We just take it for granted. But I'm not so sure. And what happens if the government comes for you? Then what do you do? I take that point. Jeff McMahon has an argument. Uh, it was in, a, in, in an interview somewhere uh, that I saw him give. And he says, this idea that like the US government is either going to come after you or it's going to fall and you're going to need, you're going to need weapons to overcome this subversion of democracy. It's a fantasy. It's never going to happen. Not, it's, it's just won't happen, he said. And on January 6th, I had this thought, came pretty close, came pretty close to happening. So actually, I'd like to tell you, before we run out of time, I'd like to tell you what I think is possibly the strongest counter-argument to my analogical argument for alcohol control. Yeah, please do. Yeah. That, I've, that I've come up against. <clears throat> and that is people have said, people of a, a sort of a, a more of a libertarian mindset have said to me, here's the disanalogy that, that blocks your analogical argument. The disanalogy is the concern is harms that are other inflicted. We're worried mostly about homicides due to firearms. If you look at the proportion, say, of alcohol deaths that are self-inflicted and other inflicted, you know, yeah, it is a third of our traffic fatalities uh, caused by alcohol, but it's, it's, it's the, the absolute numbers of other inflicted harms in comparison to self-inflicted harms due to alcohol um, um, are low, not many other inflicted harms, comparatively speaking. And there's this principle of modern liberal democracies, Mill's harm principle. And it essentially says that the, the only time that a government is justified in restricting individual liberties is when, is when exercise of those liberties could harm somebody else. If you want to undertake an activity and that activity is gonna be harmful to you, the government has no business stepping in and restricting your right to engage in that activity if it's not gonna have an effect on other people. Um, and given this disanalogy, some people have said to me, um, that blocks your analogical argument. Okay, um, let's, just, let's just grant for the sake of argument that there is this difference and that the other inflicted deaths uh, for guns are higher or more or higher proportionally than the other inflicted deaths due to alcohol. And that the harm principle as usually stated um, justifies restricting guns, but does not justify restricting alcohol. Well, there's, a, there's another version of the harm principle that actually there's textual evidence in Mill that he actually advocates. And this version of the harm principle essentially says that it's not self-inflicted and other inflicted harms that is the relevant distinction. The relevant distinction is consensual harms and non-consensual harms. So 
if I want to enter a boxing competition and um, I do this and I consent to it, even though I'm opening myself to being harmed by another person, the government has no business in restricting my entrance into this boxing match because I am consenting to this harm or this risk of harm. Now, here's how this uh, revised harm principle helps me. The revised harm principle helps me because presumably, I forget what the number was that I gave you, those 10,000 people who were poisoned because they were under the influence of alcohol and they poisoned themselves with alcohol or something else, presumably they were either, they, they may have been ignorant of that harm. That's one way of not being able to consent to something when you're ignorant of the possible harm. Or, or, or in any case, they didn't consent to undertaking that risk um, that by drinking alcohol, they would poison themselves or that whatever, I think it was 8,000 deadly falls due to alcohol. Presumably those people aren't consenting to undertake that risk. Similarly with people who are unaware uh, that alcohol is linked with breast cancer. They just don't know. So how can they consent to uh, undertake or expose themselves to this risk if they are ignorant of this risk? So a lot of the harms of alcohol, here's, here's the point, a lot of the harms of alcohol are harms that people are not consenting to, either because they um, are ignorant of them or they wouldn't consent to them. So if we look at this revised version of the harm principle, it says that the government can restrict your activity in order to present harms that you don't consent to, even if those are self-inflicted harms, then that revised version of the harm principle is going to um, is going to support the restrictions on alcohol. Now, isn't isn't that just an argument for informing people about the harms of alcohol? I'm sorry, say that again. I said, isn't that just an argument for informing people about the harms of alcohol? It's not an argument for restriction, right? I mean, it, I just said like, hey, look, folks, um, you're more likely to fall fatally. You're more likely to get breast cancer. Get a lot of blah. Now you're informed. So if you, now you drink. You've consented. I see. So we'd have, a, well, we do have warning labels on, but we already do, don't we? Have warning labels and alcohol. I mean, I'm thinking uh, cigarette packages, obviously, but there are little alcohol, don't operate equipment, don't drink if you're pregnant. But if people aren't informed, then we're clearly not doing a very good job on the PR side. Right. Right. So it sounds like it's just an argument for, I'm, I'm just putting this out there, food for thought. Um, I'm not trying to put you in the spot here. But anyway, so isn't that, what, isn't that what philosophers do? Put, put each other on the spot. No, but we always say we're not trying to, even though we are. That's right. Uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's, the, it's the song and dance we do. Yeah. Um, but no, just uh, it's just a thought. But I have one last question for you. Um, that's a question you already talked about. Um, I usually ask about failure too, but you were we, we went into that a little bit um, at the beginning. Um, I'm curious what you want on your tombstone. In other words, like what do you want your legacy to be? I don't have any illusions about the lasting influence on my work uh, of my work, uh, so I don't think there will be any tombstone, any any inscription on my tombstone tombstone relevant to my. Hey, go go to this site, look at Bruckner's stuff. It's great. No, I don't think that's I don't think that's going to be there. Um, I don't know. I just I think that I think that I'd like to be remembered as someone who's kind, someone who is honest, someone who tried not to harm other people. Um, someone who tried to do some good, kind, honest, doing good, not harming others. Um, I don't think it's much more 
mainly because I don't have any illusions about in, the lasting influence that many of us can have, I think. That was a good one, though. That was out of left field. I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Oh, <laughs> it was good having you on the show, Donald. Thank you so much, Jimmy.